0: Prior to prohibition, two separate mafia families emerged in New England. One was based in Boston, Massachusetts, and the other in Providence, Rhode Island. By 1932, both families would combine and become a force to be reckoned with.
1: I think the thing to really understand contextually about the mob in New England is it truly acted as a secondary government. And that is not hyperbole. They had cops in their pockets. They had judges in their pockets. They really ran a big part of the economy in New England. And they had a really, truly negative impact on society here. Businesses had to pay protection payments in order to operate. How are those payments passed on? Well, they're passed on to the consumer. There were, of course, murders happening. and. Don't believe the lies that they weren't involved in narcotics. They absolutely were involved
0: in narcotics. Any way they could make money, they did it. Over time, the New England crime family would become synonymous with one cunning and ruthless leader, Raymond Patriarca.
2: Ran a very tight ship. Patriarca was uh, smart. He was uh, brutal. He was very much in control of what he did.
1: People were more likely to turn to Raymond Patriarca or one of his members than they were to call the cops. Because they knew that, or they felt that anyway, they probably get a better result and a faster result by going to the mob
0: boss than by going to law enforcement. But one concealed microphone by the FBI would reveal all of Patriarchus' secrets.
3: That microphone will end up being a treasure trove of of mob activity and and learning about the uh, New England mob. This is Mafia.
0: Raymond Loredo Salvatore Patriarca was born March 17, 1908, in Worcester, Massachusetts. Gary Jenkins, host and producer of the true crime podcast Gangland Wire, discusses Patriarca's beginnings.
3: Raymond Patriarca, like all the major mafia figures of the 20th century, uh, his ancestors were Sicilian, of course, and his father, Elatario Patriarca, came over from Sicily in the early 1900s. And he married a woman named Mary once he got over here and Raymond was born an American citizen. By the time he was three years old, they moved to the Federal Hill area in Providence, Rhode Island, where he would spend the rest of his life. During the turn of the century, many Sicilians immigrated to Federal Hill,
0: bringing the Black Hand Mafia with them. In 1917, Frank Butzi Morelli and his family moved to Providence. It was around this time that Frank and his brother Joseph formed a robbery gang.
3: Now, some will claim that they're the real robbers, not Sacco and Vanzetti, who killed a guard and a pay clerk in that famous 1920 Braintree, Massachusetts robbery. During those years, most people would consider Frank Morelli to be the face of the mafia in Providence. The other family in that area, which will end up combining with Providence, Rhode Island, was the Boston family, and they were separate at the start. Tim White, investigative reporter for CBS affiliate WPRI,
0: shares insight regarding the two New England factions. When you're thinking
1: about one of those staples of organized crime, which is gambling, and you're thinking about other staples of uh, shaking down businesses for protection money, you're going to go where the volume is, and the volume is primarily in the Boston and uh,
0: Providence areas. Gaspari Messina was the leader of the Sicilian-based mafia in Boston. In late 1930, Messina was selected by fellow mafiosi to become a temporary capo di capi, after stripping the title from Joe Masseria during a feud with Salvatore Maranzano, often referred to as the Castellamarese War. Joseph Lombardo, a fellow underworld figure in Boston, was appointed as Messina's underboss and
3: organized several Sicilian gangs. They say his most important accomplishment was that he helped eliminate the powerful Irish Gustin gang. Of course, the Irish had got there earlier and, and had organized into gangs and were just now, when the Italians get there, they're moving out of organized crime behavior into uh, police work and fire department and other city jobs. As Messina and Lombardo got older, there was a new man arrived, uh, Filippo Bucola. He came to Boston from Palermo, Sicily. Joe Lombardo would never rise higher than underboss and Bacola would become the new boss of the Boston family. And by this time, I believe that Boston family was kind of like the big brother over Providence and the rest of New England. They had their own crews and everything, but Boston family would have been the dominating family. New England mob turncoat Vinnie Trasa would say that Boston's underboss, Joe Lombardo, had ordered Frank Butzi Morelli into retirement, and with that retirement, Filippo Bucola became the boss of both Boston and Providence in 1947. So that puts those two families together, that Raymond Patriarca will eventually take over from Providence.
0: Investigative reporter Tim White discusses the balance of power between Providence and Boston under Patriarca's impending reign. Almost
1: always, when the boss was in Providence, the underboss was in Boston and that was throughout Patriarca's tenure, that was the case, was the underboss was in Boston controlling the money there. Organized crime is a pyramid scheme, the payments eventually go to the top. Raymond Patriarca would always get a piece of the money that came out of Boston that was funneled back down to Providence. So on the flip side, when you had a boss in Boston, the underboss would be down in Providence, Rhode Island. So there was always sort of that balance of power.
0: Growing up, Raymond Patriarchus' father ran a bar and liquor store where young Raymond was first exposed to the criminal underworld. At age 17, Raymond's father died, leaving behind his wife Mary, their two daughters, and two
3: sons. Raymond had already quit school when he was like eight or nine years old, and and all the kids were old enough to work, and they all lived in the same Federal Hill house, and They got along okay. Uh, Raymond would later tell a uh, congressional committee that he drifted a little after his father died.
1: You're talking about a guy that grew up in the Great Depression, and he grew up most likely of very little means. We see a lot of time in many gangs, not just La Cosa Nostra, but many gangs, they prey, I suppose, on people who are down in their luck and looking for a way out. And crime can be very lucrative sometimes, uh, it, especially in context to the little means that they have. He turned to
0: crime and he was good at it. As a teenager, Patriarca worked as a bellhop
3: and shined shoes. Probably spent more time stealing hijacking trunks and running from the police, judging from his record of, of arrest from an early age By this time, by the 1920s, Prohibition came along and like every other rising young criminal during Prohibition, he was arrested for transporting illegal alcohol and got his start uh, in uh, organized crime because of Prohibition. By the 1930s, Raymond Patriarca gained
0: a reputation for being a professional
3: criminal. In 1931, Raymond Patriarca was sentenced to a year and a day in the federal prison at Atlanta for transportation of a female over the state line for purposes of prostitution, which is the MAN Act. Kind of the start of one of his early uh, organized crime activities. The following year, Patriarca was charged with
0: committing an armed bank robbery. Fortunately for Patriarca, the witnesses refused to identify him. As his notoriety grew, the Providence Police Department listed Patriarca as a public enemy.
3: This list allowed them to arrest him or anybody on that list on site and bring him in for at least a few hours.
0: Raymond Patriarca also had significant political influence. In 1938, Patriarca was paroled after serving a few months for a five-year robbery conviction. His early release was due to Daniel Coakley. An elected official on the Massachusetts Governor's Council, who
3: secured a pardon for Patriarca. Mr. Coakley, who was close to the governor of New Hampshire, had written a petition for parole that included an appeal from a Father Fagan. No first name, just Father Fagan. This priest claimed that Patriarca was a really nice young man and needed to return home and care for his ailing mother. Daniel Coakley had just made up this priest. But this action will enhance Patriarca's reputation with the other mobsters that he had really good connections. It did destroy Coakley's political career. Years later, on April 27th,
0: 1952, Filippo Bucola held a party in Johnston, Rhode Island to celebrate his retirement and Raymond Patriarca's ascension to boss of the New England crime family. With Patriarca at the helm, He soon began to organize several small crews, making big jewelry scores, bank and armored car robberies, and opening several gambling establishments in and around Providence.
3: During this time, he got an underboss who had been with the Bonanno family, a man named Enrico Tamaleo. He's also called the referee, and he would be Patriarca's underboss uh, until both of them were pretty well gone. But this gave him solid connections back to the five families and the commission.
0: One of those connections was Frank Costello, acting boss of the Luciano crime family.
3: He got involved at this time with the Luciano family acting boss, Frank Costello, in the gambling business. Frank Costello was really well known to, to branch outside of New York, especially with, uh, with slot machines out into the country. So, and he, he was a gambling czar, for sure, of, of New York. The commission agreed that he could have Boston and Providence at that point in time, and and with that came the majority of New England, wherever there could be any kind of mob activities.
1: He had the respect of New York. There are the five crime families in, in New York City, and very easily, any one of them could have tried to control the rackets, the gambling operations, prostitution, the drug trade in New England. They are the most powerful crime families
0: in the country. The Genovese crime family in particular held Patriarca in high regard. They uh, would call on
1: Patriarca for his guidance, for his help, his advice. Patriarca even sent down one of his favorite pet hitmen to help out the Genovese family in New York City. And it was because of that that he was able to hold back New York and grow his power in
0: New England and and his control in this area. Patriarca would go on to appoint Gennaro Angiulo as his underboss. Around this
3: time, Angiulo had a very successful numbers racket. Patriarca probably made him an offer he couldn't refuse. Patriarca brought him into his family and made him his, kind of like his boss down in Boston, but he had to get a big piece of Angelo's gambling action.
0: In 1957, the Massachusetts Crime Commission had named Raymond Patriarca as the most powerful influence in New England gambling, which was alleged to be a $2 billion-a-year business. In November of that same year, an estimated 100 mafiosi from the United States, Italy, and Cuba congregated in upstate New York for the infamous Appalachian meeting. Joe Broadmeadow... Author and retired captain from the East Providence Police Department shares more about this historic summit.
2: And what happened was uh, they had this meeting. obviously it was to organize some of the families. there were the five families out of New York, it was the families out of Philadelphia, Kansas City. Vegas was just starting to come of its own. And then Miami factions of the of the mob. All these all these groups got together sort of to divvy up various businesses and aspects of their their various
0: uh, interests. As the small town saw an influx of expensive cars bearing out-of-state license plates, local law enforcement became suspicious.
2: So New York State Police and the local police raided the location. Many of the people got away, uh, ran through the woods. Patriarchal was apprehended, he
0: was arrested. Following the raid, Over 60 underworld bosses were detained, including commission members Vito Genovese, Carlo Gambino, and Joseph Profacci. Each was indicted with up to $10,000 in fines. Prison sentences were also handed down, ranging from three to five years. However, all the convictions were overturned on appeal the following year.
2: This kind of brought into the attention of people interested in organized crime. Now, obviously, you know, throughout the 40s and 50s and even up until the 80s, members of organized crime and even to some extent law enforcement denied the existence. Believe it or not, it was the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drug, the precursor to the Drug Enforcement Administration, that was the first federal agency to take an interest
0: in organized crime. Following the Appalachian meeting, Raymond Patriarca began consolidating all gambling action in New England. He also started the National Cigarette Service Vending Company, operating out of a building called the Coinomatic. The Coinomatic shop, and the,
1: these were ostensibly vending machines, right? You know, think about the old cigarette vending machines. You pull out the pole, and your pack of Marlboros would come out. Uh, some pinball machines, things like that. People on the Hill called it the Office because it was the office as the headquarters of organized crime in New England. It was really ground zero for everything that was organized crime.
3: That was where he would go every day and sit there looking out at the street. It was in the Federal Hill area, just a few blocks from his house. He never really strayed, I don't think, over 10 blocks from Federal Hill, it didn't seem like.
1: Federal Hill is just, it's this iconic area of Rhode Island at Wells Avenue. It cuts through the heart of Federal Hill. It's got some of the best Italian restaurants in the country. And right at the heart was Raymond Patriaca's shop.
2: He often could be seen sitting out in front of his place on Atwell's Avenue, smoking a cigarette and everybody would wave to him. He was known as the old man. Everybody knew him as the old man. He ran a very tight ship. Patriarca was uh, smart. He was uh, brutal. He was very much in control of what he did. He also had a talent for picking people. He knew, for the most part, the kind of people to, uh, to surround himself with. He, he knew certain guys had certain talents.
0: The Coinomatic building would eventually become the target of an extensive microphone surveillance survey by the FBI during the early 1960s. Gary Jenkins of the Gangland Wire podcast talks more in depth about the survey and the challenges faced by the
3: FBI. They called a MISUR, M-I-S-U-R survey by the FBI during the 1960s. And this is an acronym for uh, microphone surveillance if it was for a telephone tap, they called it a Telser or telephone surveillance where they would go around. What they do is they walk up around buildings and they see where the telephone lines are and they see what the points of entry are for the microphone. And they had a, had a really tough time getting that hidden microphone in that uh, coin matic building because there was a social club that had gamblers in it about 18 or 19 hours out of the day, so it kind of limited the time of when the streets were totally dead so they could break in the building, and put the microphone, but that microphone will end up being a treasure trove of, of mob activity and, and learning about the uh, New England mob. In 1958,
0: Raymond Patriarca was asked to appear before the McClellan Committee on Labor Racketeering. Patriarca was asked about using strong-arm
3: tactics in an attempt to remove rival cigarette vending machines. He claims that he does not do that, and the reason for his success is that he has a shoebox with about $80,000 or $90,000 in cash... Left over from his mother's savings. That's a pretty common thing that, that mobsters used to use to beat the income tax people and explain unexplained income and say, Oh, well, I've got this cash hoard that mom or dad left, and, and I'm just using it. One of his mortal enemies was
1: Robert F. Kennedy, who at the time was under John F. Kennedy, was the attorney general for the country. And uh, uh, Robert F. Kennedy. And others at the time identified uh, La Cosa Nostra as enemy number one of the American people. And Raymond Patriarca, remember the Kennedys are from New England, was at the top of that
0: list. Robert F. Kennedy, who during this time served as chief counsel to the Senate's McClellan Committee, questioned Patriarca about committing burglaries at a young age.
3: He replied, well, you know, a lot of young fellas do a lot of things when they haven't a father later in 1959 when bobby kennedy gets him in front of the commission again Patriarca does not take the fifth like all the others he engages and describes himself as an honest businessman who's just hounded by the police and the press for no reason he got national
1: attention for that i mean you can you can google it and youtube it and see his testimony as he's being questioned about senators about like hey man what's your real job you know everyone says you're the mob boss and of course he denies that
3: it's none but a lot of hookwick that your people have been giving me for a long time. And I wish I wasn't on trial and get this case coming up. I'd like to talk to the United States of America. What's going on? Matter of fact, a, a year or two later, Patriarcha took out a large advertisement in the Providence Journal Bulletin to complain about their coverage of him. And he said, like, for example, your newspapers seem to take fiendish delight in their unwarranted and unjustifiable characterizations of me, which you infer that I'm involved in illegal activities. He took no shit from lawmakers down in Washington. He he fired
1: right back at them. And um, yeah, I mean, that almost catapulted his legendary status when he was on that national stage.
0: 1964, the FBI was finally able to infiltrate the coin building and install a hidden microphone. A listening post was established near Patriaca's office at St. Margaret's Home for Working Girls. Reports revealed Patriaca
3: to be the godfather of the New England area. They'd hear him having conversations about sharing bribes with a former New Hampshire governor, John Noddy. He wanted to get some race dates added to racetracks in Rhode Island. They learned that he forces recording industry executives to pay him to get airtime on New England radio stations, the original Payola. They hear insurance executives coming in and asking him about all the auto thefts in the area. He had a big auto theft gang going, headed up by a guy named Gerard Wimet. So the insurance people were tired of paying all the complaints, I guess, and they knew to go into uh, coin and talk to Raymond Patriarca and see if they couldn't do something about it. Additionally,
0: FBI agents discovered Raymond Patriarca to be a dominant force in all illicit political and labor union activities in New England. People would
3: even bring him, like, complaints. Like I said, he was like the godfather.
0: Look,
1: Raymond Patriarca, while he was big in power, he wasn't big in stature. He was a pretty short guy, I think he was five foot seven. He didn't have this big physical presence, but he had the big presence in the community. People were more likely to turn to Raymond Patriaca or one of his members than they were to call the cops. Uh, Because they knew that, or they felt that anyway, uh, they probably get a better result and a faster result by going to the mob boss than by going to law enforcement.
3: There was really no law against placing a hidden microphone, you just couldn't use it in court, but you could use it as intelligence information. And most people, nobody really knew they had them for a long time.
0: Law enforcement worked tirelessly to develop informants within New England's organized crime. In 1966, a hitman for the Patriarca family named Joe Barboza was arrested on a concealed weapons charge. Barboza grew suspicious of Patriarca when the mob boss failed to raise bail money and killed Barboza's two friends for trying to do so. Barboza became an informant not long after. That July, a Providence gambler named Willie Marfeo was confronted by Henry Tamaleo, consigliere to Raymond Patriaca, for failing to pay up after a gambling game. Marfeo refused and assaulted Tamaleo. This infuriated Patriaca and he ordered a hit out on Marfeo. Marfeo was shot to death in a Federal Hill grocery store. Patriarca would be indicted the following year for the murder of the Providence bookmaker, thanks in part to Joe Barboza's testimony. In exchange, Barboza was given a one-year prison term, including time served. Following parole in 1969, Barboza was told to permanently leave Massachusetts, He would soon face another sentence of five years at Folsom Prison for second-degree murder. Barboza would die at the hands of Joseph J.R. Russo less than three months after his release in 1976. As for Raymond Patriaca, he was convicted and began serving time in 1969. Despite being behind bars, Patriaca was still calling the shots from his prison cell.
1: He felt that while he was in prison, his soldiers, his, the main members of the crime family and associates, they weren't paying enough tribute to him. And he was pissed off about it. And he wanted to send a message to everyone um, that he
0: was in power. And he was also greedy. In the next episode... Raymond Patriarca's insatiable appetite for wealth would bring about history's most infamous heist. He was approached by a uh, very powerful
1: and scary, ruthless, murderous faction of organized crime called the Wemet faction.
2: This place was robbed, and it was robbed by people associated with uh, Raymond Patriarca, a guy by the name of Gerard Wemet who was known as the Frenchman, was essentially second-in-command of Patriarca's group, even though he was not Italian. But he was so well-respected by Patriarca that he essentially was his second-in-command.
1: John Womet had learned of this secret mob bank, if you will, that, that was in the heart of this old factory building. I call it a factory building, but it's a first storage facility. And a first storage facility, to me, is such a, you know, 1970s... Rhode Island thing where people in the summer, they would store their furs in this climate controlled building. But in the middle of it, the family that owned this fur business had installed these massive safe deposit boxes.
2: And there were five guys involved, six guys involved in this robbery. And they went into this bonded vault. They, they took the people that were there to kidnap them. They locked them up in a, in a bathroom. And they broke open 187 safe deposit boxes.
1: This was the heist of a lifetime. The problem was, it was really hard for a long time to figure out exactly how much was stolen, but they couldn't tell for sure because finding a victim was very difficult. Think about it, if you're somebody that stole a bunch of money, stole a bunch of raw gems, stole silver bars, and you hid it in this vault, you got robbed, are you gonna call the cops and say, hey,
0: all that stuff I just stole got robbed, can you help me out? No. I'm Fleet Cooper. And this has been Mafia, an Audioboom original series. Mafia is produced by Boom's Lauren Vogel, Blair Payton, Pam Burroughs, and Karen Bevan. Executive producers for Audioboom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. Special thanks to Gary Jenkins of the true crime podcast Gangland Wire, author Joe Broadmeadow, and Tim White, investigative reporter and co-author of The Last Good Heist. Follow Mafia on Spotify, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.